Good evening. Try that again. Good evening. Ah, much better. Maybe I should have started with howdy or something like that, right? <laughs> okay. While you're getting settled, go ahead and turn to Malachi chapter 2. Anybody who's visiting or haven't been here a couple weeks, but we're walking through the book of Malachi. Uh, incidentally, he has a perfect name, right? His name is the transliteration of the Hebrew word messenger, and he is a messenger of God. And he has a special message for the people of Israel, and specifically right now, he has a specific message for the priest of Israel. And uh, so we've been walking through that in chapter 1 and 2, and we're going to be in chapter 2 today, verses 10 through 16. And the title of message today is The Rings of Power. So I'm not talking about the rings forged by the elves in Middle Earth for all the Lord of Rings fans. No, I'm talking about the ring of matrimony forged by God in Genesis chapter 2 for Earth. Okay? Representing his, um, his holy institution of marriage. And in this section that we're going to be in today, uh, the priests are going to continue to be rebuked by Malachi on behalf of God for them profaning these rings of power because they're not holding up or ascribing holiness to what they're supposed to be doing. They're continuing to break his, his laws, right, and not obeying him. And so the big idea that I want to leave you with tonight is that wedding rings may symbolize either our profaning or our consecrating of the covenant of marriage. Go ahead and switch to the next slide. Wedding rings may symbolize either our profaning or our consecrating the covenant of marriage. So children, all, all children look at me. I'm going to help you understand what these words um, profaning and consecrating mean. So we all know that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. That includes our voice, right? And so as part of God's creation, God and God has called us to be holy, right? And so if we profane our voice, we're going to, how, how do we profane that holy voice, right? We say bad words. We say unkind things to people. Uh, we tear people down. Uh, we can even reject Christ with our words, okay? That's profaning our voice. If we consecrate our voice, we uphold its sacredness, its holiness that God made. And in that, we sing praises to him. We worship him. We pray to him. We say kind things to people. We share the gospel. So if I profane things with my voice, I'm not using it as the holy instrument God created for. If I consecrate it, I'm recognizing the reverence that God made that voice for. And that's what we're talking about today. These wedding rings can symbolize I can either be profaning the institution of marriage or I can consecrate the institution of marriage. Okay, and we're going to see that as we walk through this today. Now, I ascribe to text-driven preaching, which says the substance and the structure and the spirit of the text is what guides the hermeneutics and the interpretation and how I preach. And so there's only two points in this, ser in this sermon. I can't give you three because there's only two paragraphs, two distinct thoughts. And so I can't give you three. I'm not going to make up a third point. <laughs> so you only get two. I'm only going to spend an hour on each one. You laugh, right? You laugh. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but there are only two points. So Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we're going to hunger and thirst over what God wants to teach us for in Malachi chapter 2. But before we can have that meal, I think I want us to set the table first. I want to tell you a few things. 
So we can go to the next slide. We're going to set the table for this meal. The first thing I want to talk to you about is to pay attention is the direct tone. So, you know, Malachi is addressing the apathy of the priest, and he's very direct with the people. And he's hitting them with a sledgehammer. And so I have to preach it that way, right? But that means, of course, it may open up some wounds that you've walked through in life or may be walking through now. And so I'm going to ask you just to bear with me. I'm going to put that sledgehammer in bubble wrap a little bit. At the end of the sermon, we're going to talk about God's grace and his mercy and his compassion. Okay, so bear with me as we get to the end of the sermon so that we're going to come back to God's love for us in all of this. So because I know there's a few aspects in our life that are, more, that are much more emotional than this, right? Marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage, all those things bring up emotions and lots of ideas and opinions. But we're going to stick to what God's word says. We're going to start here in Malachi, and we'll look at other passages as well. And then we're going to end uh, tonight talking about God's grace and his compassion for us in all this. Second thing is relevant offenses. Yes, Malachi is talking to the priest. He's chastising them and holding them accountable for what they're doing. But remember what we talked about last week in the Eric sermon. We are all called to be a royal priesthood, right? So this message is for us as well, because we're called to holiness. We're called to be a holy priest. So yes, the passage is speaking specifically to those priests, but put yourself there, because we all have been apathetic spiritually, right? Every one of us in this room. So God is speaking to us as well. This passage is relevant to us. Exegetical gymnastics. So you're fortunate enough tonight that we're going to address arguably the most difficult verse in the Bible to translate, which is Malachi 2.16. And there's translations all over the maps. You all have Bibles tonight that have different translations of that verse and lots of footnotes, okay, because it's so difficult to translate. And so we're going to walk through that one together and see what God says. In the end, it's not going to matter <laughs> about the translation, okay, because it's going to be quite clear what God thinks about his institution of marriage. Things I want, to, want you to look for as we go through the passage. Uh, depending on what translation you have, you're going to see the word faithlessness or treacherous. Okay, look for that. You're going to see it about five times as we go through. And this is the opposite of God, right? He's not faithless. He's faithful. He's not treacherous. He's a promise keeper. He's loyal. So the direct opposite of who God is. So look for these five instances as in the passage. The other thing to look for is the word one. It's going to be used four times in this passage. And this is going to talk about the true one God, right? Who makes one community, one family, one marriage. And it's the spirit of this unity of community that we see in the oneness of God that's going to come out in the passage. So be aware of those things as we kind of walk through it, okay? So now as we kind of set the table a little bit, you're ready to eat, right? We're ready to jump in. You're hungry and thirsty for Malachi chapter 2. Let's dive in and look at that. So the outline we're going to follow on the next slide, we're going to look at the two offenses. Okay, there's only two, one about interfaith marriage and one about divorce. And the way this is set up in Malachi, he's, there's a charge against the priest, and then there's a call to repentance. Okay, a charge against the priest and a call to repentance. And we're going to look, look at each of those separately. And then we're going to follow up with some applications in our contemporary world around us. So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to jump in the first one. So I'm going to read uh, verses 10 through 12, the first paragraph there in our passage tonight. Here's what the word of God says. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? 
Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter for a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So first of all, and I hope you see in this passage, you see some juxtaposition of words, right? Comparison and contrast. Similar to like you see in Proverbs, where we have the, the wise man versus the foolish man, right? So we have juxtaposition or comparison contrast in this passage as well. We have abomination and profaned versus holy institution or sanctuary and what God loves. Two separate extremes. And abomination is a heavy word, right? God only uses it for the worst of things that, that mars his holiness in the scripture. So whenever you see that word abomination, God really doesn't like that, okay? It's not used lightly ever. It's always reserved for something that mars his holiness. It's reserved for such things as idolatry, uncleanliness, human sacrifice, and violations of the law. We, all, we saw that when we walked through Leviticus together. Okay? All those things mar his holiness, and he called those things an abomination. Where he places marriage with these foreign women also in that same category. And we're going to see why he does that. It's not because they're foreign women. It's because they're bringing in their foreign idols. So God's not against interracial marriage. He's against interfaith marriage, those who worship other gods. I want to be clear of that, right? God made all humanity. There's really only one race, right? Human. Okay? He made all the diversity of ethnicities and things around, nations around the world. We're free to marry one another as long as we marry believers, as we'll see tonight. Is that what's, this is what God is getting at. And the priests are profaning that. Versus God calls marriage and, and, the, and the temple here a holy institution. Some of you verses say, versions say holy institution. Some say sanctuary. And this is a special place to God. He loves it, right? Think back to Leviticus. Why does God love it? What was happening there? Well, two things. There was either a place of celebration or a place of, of repentance, right? Both those things occurred in his tabernacle. And God loves both of those, right? He loves communing with us. Of course, he wants us to repent and turn back to him. And of course, he wants to celebrate things with us. He, he loves his sanctuary. He loves his holy institution. And this was just opposed to this abomination that was occurring. So what's happening? Interfaith marriage, right? Um, they forgot what God said in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He says, do not marry foreign women. Why? Because they will lead you astray to worship other idols. So let me, and this was, so a contemporary Malachi was uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. They all lived around the same time, all dealing with the same people here. And in Nehemiah, I'm, I'm going to turn back and you just listen to me. You don't have to turn there. Nehemiah chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 23 through 31. I want you to hear the extreme that Nehemiah went to, right? To try to rid the priests of doing this. In those days, also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? 
Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And of course, they, they all want to repent, right? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishabab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalot, the Hornite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Okay, Quite clear, right? He's reminding them, just as Malachi is reminding them. God said, don't do this, not because he's against interracial marriage, but because of the interfaith marriage, them bringing their other idols. And we know that God's not against interracial marriage because we turn to Matthew chapter 1, we see what in the lineage of Jesus. Who do we see? We see Rahab, Canaanite, married Salmon, and we see Ruth, a Moabite, married Boaz. So there's two, quote, foreign women in the genealogy of Jesus. But they turned away from their idols, right, and worshiped God. So it was not an interfaith marriage, even though they were from other nations. So God's not forgetting interracial marriage, just interfaith marriage. Because God wants us to have pure worship, right? As I often tell the kids in the kids' ministry, our heart is not a duplex. can't have two gods there, only one, right? And that's what God is saying. I, I don't, if you marry these uh, foreign spouses, they're going to pull you away to have multiple idols, and you worship other people besides me. Compromise leads to corruption, leads to collapse. And we see this in Numbers. Let me turn there real quick. Numbers 25. I want to read verses 1 through 9, and I want you to listen to what happened and how, how much God cares about this, right? While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So they started marrying the other daughters, right, and sons. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So they just disobeyed God, right, worshiping the other idols. So Israel yoked himself to Baal the pure. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So he said, Bring the chiefs of these people out and kill them and hang them in front of everybody. Because God wants to be quite clear, I told you not to do this. My holiness is something not to toy with. You do not handle my holiness as something common. Verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. The context is he brings the Midianite there to have intim sexual intimacy with, right? And where are they at? At the doorsteps of the church, right? He brings them there. Complete apathy, right? Doesn't care what's going to happen. And then, thankfully, we see Phinehas, as the son of Azar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it. He rose and left the congregation, took up a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. The way this is written, it spears both of them. You figure out what they were doing in the tent, okay? And God took care of business, right? And he put a plague. And the plague killed 24,000 people who had, bailed, who had uh, worshipped Baal, who had married 
foreign daughters and sons. Of course, God said, don't do that, right? Don't mar me. I am holy. You shall be a holy nation. We read that at the beginning on purpose. God called them to be a holy nation. They were not doing that. God is trying to discipline them so they repent. He's doing the same thing here with the, the priest here. He wants them to repent. Earlier this year in January, I gave you a sermon on the cost of spiritual compromise. And we talked about King Solomon and his spiral downward, right? We said he had deliberate disobedience, marrying the foreign women, like lots of them, right? He had a divided heart that led to detestable idolatry, divine disgust, and, and then, of course, devastating discipline, not only to him, but the whole country of Israel. Ahab, Jewish man who married a foreign woman named Jezebel, right? And she led him and the entire nation into all sorts of depths of the poverty that they have not seen before. To the point that to this very day, no one names their daughter Jezebel. In fact, if I called you Jezebel, you would be quite offended, <laughs> wouldn't you, right? So we have countless examples of what would happen if we disobeyed God. Yet, because of their spiritual apathy, the priests are still doing that. The priests are doing that. And I'm not talking about the people yet, right? The priests are doing that. The ones who are supposed to be leading the people, representing them to God, are leading them astray. So much so, it says, for Judah, the entire nation of Judah has profaned, right? And has married the daughter of a foreign god. It has become so, so normative, right? That almost every priest is doing that. The God is saying, you know, the whole country. It's a normative thing that this is happening. And then he gives a charge here to try to bring them to repentance. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So the priests were just saying, I, this is okay for me to do. I'm still going to bring my offerings to the sanctuary. doesn't matter that I'm unholy with what I'm doing. I'm disobeying God. And God said, don't do that. I'm going to cut you off. Now, most of you know the inheritance in, in Israel is a big thing, right? They get the land, they have prosperity, they have God's blessing. So to be cut off means to be cut off from all of that. You're no longer part of God's Israel. You no longer have access to inheritance of land. You no longer have access to God's blessing. God is serious about his holiness and about his institution of marriage. Well, he's telling them, don't be apathetic. You know, to avoid this punishment, repent and turn, right? Back to me. Because all they're doing is they're thinking their actions, they're so apathetic, they don't think it's affecting their service. But it does, right? Because we're serving who? What type of God? A holy God, right? It matters as we approach a holy God. We can't treat him as common. And yet they are. That brings us to the second point, verses 13 through 16. Well, let me read that together, starting in verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's, bleh, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? 
because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit, and do not deal treacherously. So what's happening here? Not only are the priests marrying, doing interfaith marriage, they're divorcing their wives of youth. They're going to the altars crying and praying and making offerings, making sacrifices, but they, they're not receiving blessing, right? And God receives no joy in that. He's saying, I'm not receiving joy in this. Remember last week, they were bringing blemished animals, right, to the altar. God says, what does this say about my holiness that you just bring a blemished animal to me, right? I don't accept that. And he's not accepting their prayers here. They're putting at the altar. They're there he's rejecting them. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be rejected by God. I want him to hear me. But that's not what's happening here. He's saying, I'm rejecting your prayers. I'm not listening to your tears. I'm not listening to your groanings. Why? And they're so apathetic. They say, well, why has he done this? They have no idea. They're completely oblivious, apathetic. Why does he not do these things? Verse 14. And then the charge in verse 14, right? Because the Lord has witness between you and your wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This phrase, wife of youth and covenant, um, should, those of you who read Proverbs regularly throughout the year, it should tickle your ears a little bit because it echoes several things. In Proverbs chapter 2, starting in saying in verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And then five, verses 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in your streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Of course, it's not talking about cisterns and streams of water, right? It's talking about their wives, right? They're, they're abandoning their wives of their youth. Same words used here in Malachi. They're divorcing their wives that they married in their youth. Now, we don't know why this is happening. We don't know if it was just they cooked a bad meal. Don't know if they did or did not want kids, or they just want a newer model. With the way it's written, most commentators and I allude to this as well because the way it's phrased, they're talking about the wife of your youth. They want a newer model. And so they're just divorcing their wives at will and remarrying. And who are they remarrying? The foreign wives, right, who, who lead them to worship other idols. So God's not happy at all. But you see in here some interesting words that harken back to Genesis chapter 2, which we read earlier this evening. In verse 14, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Companion, right? What does that mean? It's the same word picture used in Genesis chapter 2. You're united, you're joined together, you are one. 
It's the same word picture as the scales on a crocodile. Okay? Choose your companion. Choose your friend. My best friend in the world is my wife. Right? We are one. Two different personalities, <laughs> but we are one. Right? She is my companion. What did Adam want when he's looking at all the animals? He's naming all the animals. I see a he hippo and a she hippo. I see a he tarantula and a she tarantula. I think the tarantulas are he's and she's, right? <laughs> I see a giraffe, a he giraffe, and a she giraffe, but I don't see a she for me. He was alone. He wanted what? He wanted a companion, and God makes him one and brings Eve to him, the first marriage. God brings Eve to him and marries them together. By the way, it's a rabbit trail. All the process we follow in marriages on the stage, all that comes from Genesis chapter 2, whether people in the world know that or not. Your companion. You're, you're dismissing your companion. Your friend, your helper. Pointing back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Then it uses this word covenants. And the covenant's a heavy word in the Bible. So if we go to the covenant slide, please. So there's three covenants that we back one. There we go. Thank you. So there's three covenants that we see today in the world around us. Okay, there's an ecclesiastical model where the church is in charge of marriage, and that would be like Catholicism. Okay, they are in charge of marriage. Uh, they define marriage. Uh, they're in charge of it. It, it is a, it's a church ecclesiastical doctrine and ordinance. There's a contractual model that we all follow, right? We follow the government. We have to get a marriage license. It is a contract, a civil contract. Uh, that is a federal ordinance. We follow the state. But then there's what? A divine covenant, right? A covenant that only God is in charge. It's a creation ordinance. Why do I say it's creation ordinance? Because it goes back to Genesis chapter 2. That's when God created marriage. And so when we as believers get married, we're doing two things at once. We're doing this divine covenant with God, and then we're obeying the, God, the federal government as well, right? And doing the state law and following marriage license. But what's happening here, I mean, we didn't have the government, the state government taking place right here in Malachi chapter 2. They're following the covenant of God created in Genesis chapter 2. And there's two types of covenants in the Bible. Next slide. There is a social covenant and a political covenant that you find in God's word. Social covenant, so it unites two parties of equal status. Right? You have a weaker and a weaker number two. They want to do something together, but they want to make sure that one doesn't overreach on the other. And so they want somebody who's stronger than both of them to witness. Okay, And so you have a stronger person who witnesses. They witness the covenant between the two, and those, those two weaker individuals give loyalty to the witness there. There's blessings and curses if you don't uphold the covenant, but the covenant is lifelong. It never ends. Okay, and we see that um, in the Bible. There's Jacob and Laban. Okay, they do a social covenant together to protect the land, collect their sheep and their herds, and their sons and their daughters. That's in Genesis chapter 31. We see um, David and Jonathan do a covenant together, and so forth. We see God doing a covenant with people as well. Okay, in the Bible. Then there's also the political covenant. And I don't mean politics like we've seen in the last few weeks, okay? Political covenant is where you have a stronger party 
wants to do something for the weaker party. And so they form a covenant together. And they say, if I will provide for you if you give me loyalty. So think in medieval times, the Lord and vassals, right? The Lord had all this land. And he said, the vassals can come here and they can have a home here and have their herds. And I will protect them if they're loyal to me. Okay? We see this in the Bible as well. Think of Noahic covenant. God, the stronger party, making a covenant with Noah. God making a covenant with Adam. The new covenant, God making a covenant with us. Okay? Again, there's curses and blessings if you uphold or do not uphold the covenant, but it is lifelong. The interesting thing about these types of covenants in the Bible, next slide, is marriage is both of these. In the social covenant, God is a witness to the covenant between husband and wife. So marriage doesn't really involve just two people, right? It involves three. Okay? For the believers, it involves God, husband, and wife. Okay? And remember I said it was lifelong, right? There's blessing and curses, depending on how you uphold the covenant, but it is lifelong, and God is overseeing that. Save you thousands of dollars in marital counseling. You see it forms a triangle, right? What happens when the husband and wife get closer to God? They get closer to one another. Okay, there you go. Saved you thousands of dollars. <laughs> Political covenant, of course. Federal headship, the spiritual um, leader of the home, the husband, right, has a, forms a political covenant with his wife. Says, I will provide for you if you are loyal to me. Change that word provide to love and loyal to respect. So you all heard the, lo- the love and respect cycle, right? That's what this is. Okay, so marriage is both of these. But the priests are washing that away by divorcing those wives. He said, I'm throwing away my companion. I'm throwing away my covenantal wife. And God is not happy at all. Look at verse 15. Malachi said, did he not make them one? with a portion of the spirit in their union? Whose spirit? Should be a capital S in most of your versions, right? It's God's spirit, right? Because he's involved in the marriage. But the priests are throwing that away. They're dissolving that. And Malachi is asking this, what are you doing? God made you one. Why did he do that? There's many reasons for marriages, one of which is written here, that God wanted godly offspring. He wanted to expand his kingdom, right? And then we get to verse 16. Next slide. Okay. So at the bottom of this slide is the Hebrew. Okay. Um, And then I paraphrase for you what it means in English in those few 17 words. Okay. Because he hated. Sending out. Sending out is the word for divorce. Um, he has said, Yahweh, the God of Israel, for he has covered with violence upon his garment. He has said, Yahweh, host, you must be careful. I can't read the word. You must be what? Yes, careful. With your spirit and not, you will not, you will act treacherously. Okay? So you all figure that out. Figure out what the verse says and let me know. <laughs> yeah. That's where Bible translation happens, right? This is what, exactly what the Hebrew says, and you've got to figure out what it means. The problem with this verse is there's several he's and his's there, right? Those male pronouns. 
The question is, what are they referring to? Are they referring to God or to the husband? And so up to the 21st century, um, all your Bibles and translators and commentators would say it refers to God. And so it says, for God hates divorce. Um, but there's been a, a movement here lately that can be retranslated. And so ESV, NIV, Holman Christian Standard say they, they define that he as husband. And it says, if the husband hates and divorces. So let me read you two of those verses. In, in ESV, if you have it, it'll say, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. In NASB, it says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. So be careful about your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Regardless of which translation, it's clear <laughs> that the divorce is here is not seen in a good light, right? And that's carried out throughout Scripture. God does not like divorce, right? So I personally, when I've translated this before, we spent a, actually a week translating this <laughs> in seminary. I, I tend to lean towards the NASB version that it says, for God hates divorce. But again, it's not going to change the spirit of the text or what God is trying to tell us here, okay? So is God's word wrong? No. Is it still God-inspired? Yes. Is it still inerrant? Yes. The problem is we none of us speak ancient Hebrew, <laughs> okay? We're doing the best we can by what we have. And again, at the end of the day, it doesn't change the overall message that God is telling us. Now, you saw this interesting phrase in here, covered with a garment. What in the world does that mean? Covered with a, a garment of violence. You have to remember, a part of the marriage ceremony in Bible's times involved the man placing his garment over the woman. And that signified that he would protect her, that he would accept her as his wife. Do you remember anywhere in the Bible where that had occurred? Remember Ruth chapter 3. Boaz is sleeping. Ruth goes in lays down at his feet. He wakes up and says, oh, there's Ruth, who he likes, right? And what does he do? He plates his garment over her, saying, I will accept you, but I have to do one thing first. There's one more kinsman redeemer closer to you than me that I need to take care of business first, which he does. But he put his garment over, saying, yes, I want to marry you. I want to be your protector and your kinsman redeemer. That's what's happening, this, this visual here. They're putting their garment around. But he says, now you're your garment now is covered with the violence because you're divorcing this, your wife. Why is the, the garment covered with the violence? Because they're one, right? When you forsake your wife, you're mistreating her, and you're covering your own garment with violence. Divorce is a violent aspect, according to God. You cannot... If I'm a husband and I divorce my wife, I'm going to impede violence upon myself in God's eyes, right? Because we're one, and we're taking that apart. You can't mistreat, right, your wife and not be affected. And Paul points this out in Ephesians 5, I mean, yes, Ephesians 5 verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. What does that mean? Simply, if you love your wife, it's going to benefit you, right? If you mistreat your wife, it's not going to go well with you either. Okay? 
And I can say that vice versa, right? Wife and husband. So what's happening here? What has happened? They have divorced their wife. Don't know reasons why, but they're doing it. And God gives them two things to watch out for here. He's trying to call them repentance. He says what? Guard yourself. He says it twice in this passage. When God says something two or three times, it means pay attention. Guard yourselves. Guard your spirit. The priests are dealing faithlessly towards their wives because they did not heed their spirit. What does that mean? Okay, They have an argument with their wife, but they don't forgive her later on. They let it build up and other things. They become more critical, and then it starts bringing up bitterness and contempt and hate to the point that they want to divorce them. Didn't guard the spirit, right? Do Monica and I have disagreements? Of course, right? But we repent of them and resolve them quickly so that bitterness does not creep in and criticalness and hatefulness, right? So we don't go down that path. That's what it means, guard your spirit. That's what's, what's what they forgot to do. And he said, do that. You can change your feeling towards your spouse. This is what scripture says. By guarding your spirit. But it does take both of you to do that. Go to the next slide, please. So what we've seen really quickly here is God has given us two charges to the priest. One, you're doing interfaith marriage. Repent of that. One, you're divorcing the wives of your youth. Repent against that. And remember, back then... Divorcing your wife was a much bigger deal than it is today because that means they were economically destitute, right? They lost all access to inheritance. They didn't have any economy. And so they're really mistreating their wives when they do that. Well, let's talk about some applications. How can we apply this to us in the day 21st century? What does all this mean? So the first thing I want to do is I want to show a, a selfie of the culture around us. So next slide. I'll let you absorb some of that a little bit. I'm not going to read every word just because we have little ears. Um, but the stats are sad, depressing, may wake you up. Unfortunately, many of them are, quote, normative in the culture. They are expected. They are the norm rather than not being the norm. And... Overwhelming majority of them, there's no difference between the church and the world. This is Satan's perversion of the institution of marriage that he started in Genesis chapter 3. He has not stopped attacking God's institution of marriage. Started in Genesis 3, continues now. It will continue until Jesus comes back. Okay? This is meant to be a wake-up call to all of us, right? Our culture actually markets divorce, premarital sex, adultery, and other things as a triumph to autonomy, right? I am myself. I, can, I have complete autonomy. I can make my own choice without any consequences. Let me just pick on divorce. Divorce to, to the world is just conscious uncoupling, right? A final act of love for my spouse by untying the marriage commitment, thereby permitting each person to more fully express their authentic selves. And this is what we tell ourselves in the world, right? This is not what God intended. 
This is not what God says. It's not what he said in Malachi. So the world tells itself it's lies, right? There's no consequences. Because autonomy and truth to the world is what? Relative. This is our standard, right? Not the world. May we be not, may the church not be like the world, right? May we, this congregation, turn that around. So let's take a next slide. I want to walk through a couple of applications for us. And let's first talk about singleness. We all start off single in this world and we'll end up single in heaven. Okay? Start off the same and end up the same. Um, you may wonder, well, you know, again, does this passage here talk about interfaith marriage that apply to us today? Yes, that has not changed. God does not want us to be unequally yoked. He does not want us to marry somebody who is an unbeliever, right? So God either wants you to be single and celibate or married and fruitful, okay? Of course, both of those things are distorted by the curse in the world that we live in. So singleness is really a beautiful gift for Christians, right? We often don't view it that way, but it is. It's really a calling from God. Um, if you can, you can devote, fully devote yourself to following the Lord. Now, if I start my clock at 18, I got married when I was 38. I was single for 20 years. I know how hard it is. I know the temptations. I know the loneliness. I know the questions to God. Am I going to get married? Should I get married? I know all those things. I have been through those things. Sleepless nights, crying tears, fleeing temptations. I know it's difficult. But if God calls you to a single a period of singleness, praise him for that. I finally realized that when around 35, right? When I was trying, it's like, okay, I'm going to be content being single because I can serve you full-time, right? Yes, I had a job, but then I could serve him full-time doing whatever I needed to do, whatever he called me. Because why? Because I didn't have a wife and kids to, quote, distract me from serving God, right? I love my wife and kids, but now I have other responsibilities, right? And Paul tells us that. Paul wished us in 1 Corinthians 7 that everyone could be single, right? So they could be fully devoted to following God. But of course, God calls us, right? To be fruitful and multiply, as he said in Genesis chapter 2. Why we're single. God doesn't want us to have premarital sex. He doesn't want us to cohabitate. You want us to be, remain holy and have abstinence, right? Be pure. And if we do get married, he wants us to marry a believer, not an unbeliever. Why? Because God is holy. We are a holy priesthood, a holy royal priesthood. We do not want to mix the unholy with the holy. We want, do not want to have an interfaith marriage. We see that in Malachi. We see that in Exodus, Deuteronomy. We see that in persons in Second Corinthians. Throughout the hall of scripture, that is clear. Do not be unequally yoked. I am free. You're as a single person, you're free to marry anybody you want to as long as they are a believer. If you're single and not dating or courting an unbeliever, then don't start. Okay. If you are dating or courting an unbeliever, 
I want to tell you to stop, to leave. And it's not me who's saying that, it's God's word. Okay? Don't profane the holiness. Do protect your mind, ears, and eyes. Right? Remember, familiarity leads to intimacy. Set up those protections, right? Flee temptation. God's word never tells us to fight temptation for sexual morality. His word is always to flee. Okay? David, man of God's own heart, couldn't resist it and fight it. Solomon, the wisest man, could not resist and fight it. Samson, the strongest man, couldn't. What makes you think you can? Right? God gave us an example in Joseph. Flee. Right? He didn't stay there and try to debate with Pharaoh's wife. He fled. Right? And that's throughout Scripture, sexual morality, you are to flee it. Of course, don't cohabitate, right? Don't have premarital intimate relationships. I'm going to help you with that by turning to 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Just listen to these verses. Do not rebuke an older man, me, okay? <laughs> but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and all purity. If I am dating and courting a believer, I want to flip the question. What you're really asking is how far is too far? You are to treat them what? As a sister. Lady, you are to treat them as a brother. What things would you would not do with your sister or brother? You go, ooh, I wouldn't do that. Exactly. Okay, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 2. Read that, memorize it, put it on your mind and in your heart. Okay? They are your sister and brother in Christ. And what it says, in all purity. And of course, begin to pray for a godly spouse, right? I did that for 20 years. And he answered me finally. <laughs> in his own goodwill and time, according to his timing, right? I would have preferred him in earlier, but I'm not God. I'm sure... She wasn't ready. I'm kidding. I wasn't ready. Okay. <laughs> That's a joke we've said before. Okay. I get dinner tonight. Relax. <laughs> okay. Next slide. Let's talk about uh, marriage. Now, I can't go over every perturbation of marriage. So I'm going to just say, talk about marriage of a, two believers. Okay. And if one of them, unfortunately, dies and passes, Scripture says that is permitted to remarry as long as you're remarrying a believer. Scripture is clear that if there's infidelity, uh, A, therefore adultery, and then usually I'm going to put the man there today since I am one. If I commit adultery on my wife, the Bible says it's permitted to divorce. didn't say it's required, right? God's word says it's permitted for the hardness of our hearts. He prefers that what? We reconcile and repent. The exclusion principle in Matthew 19, which talks about um, if, if there's infidelity, you may divorce. We forget about chapter 18, which is all about forgiveness, right? The entire chapter. And Jesus is talking from one thing to another. It's not two separate days. He's talking about forgiveness, and then he talks about this, right? So we forget about that. Is it easy? Of course not. Of course not. I'm not trying to belittle that whatsoever. But his preference, of course, is that there are reconciliation. Then, of course, if there's divorce, then it's permitted, right? And then you can remarry a believer. 
If it's for any other reason, God's word says, no, we're not going to permit divorce. It's not permitted according to God's word. And I'm going to put in the bottom here, of course, if there's any emotional or physical abuse, of course, immediate separation, right? And the church is here to help you with that, right? We don't want you to stay in that situation, nor does God. Now, again, there are things happening in the 21st century that were not in God's word, right? Happening in God's word when it was written, right? Pornography did not exist, right? And lots of other things did not exist. And that God's word doesn't speak to those things. But the principles in scripture are there for us to be wise and have grace, right? Ultimately, we want to always try to get to reconciliation and repentance. That's what his word says. And other matters, we have to treat with wisdom and seek him and remember his grace on matters. Malachi chapter 2 agrees with Jesus in Matthew, which agrees with Genesis in chapter 2, that marriage is to be a lifelong covenant between a husband and a wife. Now let's talk about God's grace. I realize I may have opened up old wounds. I know some of you are walking through some things now. I actually did not want to give this sermon. I beat myself all week because I never want to hurt any of you as a pastor of his sheep. I don't want to do that. But this is a pastor God gave me to preach, and so I had to preach it, okay? But I don't, I don't want to leave us with the sledgehammer that Malachi gives us. I want us to turn to the New Testament and talk about God's grace. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin, Okay? All premarital sex is not the unforgivable sin. Adultery is not unforgivable sin. As detrimental and as hurtful as they are, they are not the unforgivable sin. And God's word says that all sins are covered by his grace in God and through Jesus Christ. So if you feel bludgeoned tonight by the spirit from what I've preached, um, I want you to realize Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break. I realize many of you are bruised. God's not here to break you. He's here to put his arms around you. Although he is holy and just, he is also compassionate and forgiving to those who repent. So where you feel guilt over past failures, be comforted by the cross of Christ. You have been made a new creation. Your sins are as far as the east is from the west if you are a believer. Believers have been declared not guilty before God. We have been justified. God has placed all our sin on his son, Jesus Christ. We sang that, right, earlier this evening. When we fail, we have God's promise that if we confess our sins to him, he will forgive us and wipe away all traces of guilt. Now, there's three parts, three Aspects of guilt on a spectrum. There is me having, I have no guilt whatsoever. I'm completely apathetic. That's the priest here, right? They're complete spiritual apathy. They have no guilt whatsoever what they've done. There's in the middle here, guilt that leads to repentance. And that's a good thing. I feel guilty or uh, condemned over my sin. And it turns me towards God. I want to turn away from that sin. And that's a healthy guilt, right? I realize I'm a sinner. And then there's 
this false guilt on the other extreme, which is not good, right? This false guilt says, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. And that's pride, right? Pride says, God may forgive me, but my standard is higher than God's. What Jesus did on the cross may be sufficient to cover other sins, but not mine. I must help Jesus pay for the sin by punishing myself. I will continue to carry my shame until I decide I have paid for it. Don't leave here tonight feeling that way. Humility, not pride, but humility, gratefully accepts a pardon it can, can never earn and lives to demonstrate that gratefulness. If I cling to false guilt, I insult the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. I just, I'm, I'm proving that his, his death was not needed. So don't do that, right? Don't live in false guilt. There's two calls tonight that I want to leave you with um, that are burns on my heart. One is a call to holiness, which is what God is calling their priest to, right? What this whole book is calling us to, for us to renew holiness with God. That's my prayer for this church, that we have spiritual revival, that we turn back to holiness. Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 27, Leviticus 20.26, Exodus 19.6 and 1, Peter 1.16, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 7. All those say, what? Be holy for I am holy. Paraphrasing some of them. A call to holiness. This wedding ring that I wear symbolizes my marriage to Monica. I can profane God's institution of marriage, or I can consecrate it by how I live out that marriage with her. And so tonight I'm calling you to do some soul searching. I want you to renew your commitment to biblical singleness if you're single. And I want you to renew your commitment to biblical marriage if you're married. This means there's some heart work involved, right? There means there needs to be some transparency. There needs to be some confession. My goal is to call us together to holiness, right? The back to God. We can't do that if we bring him our blemished selves, right? So if you're struggling in singleness and currently walking in sin right now, repent from that, right? You don't want to stand in front of him blemished, right? Repent from your sin. Renew your commitment to biblical singleness. If you're married and you're walking through sins of any kind, whether it's strife with your wife or not praying or pornography or whatever the case may be, turn away from that. Repent, right? Because you want your marriage to be holy. Because you remember, you have a witness there watching, right? You're not hiding anything. God's aware of your marriage. So tonight, I want you to you know, when we come up here and Chad and his group sings, uh, I want you to do some soul searching, right? And renew your commitments. Second call is a call to Christ. If you're here and do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no chance of being holy <laughs> and being redeemed, right? Because you don't know I have Jesus in your life. And so I, I call you to him. To accept him as your Lord and Savior, realizing that you are a sinner and he died for your sins and rose the third day to conquer that penalty of death. 
and he's alive. And he wants to be your Lord and your Savior. You cannot walk in the Spirit to be holy without him. You can't have, I would dare say, a healthy, blessed marriage without him, right? Christ has to be in your marriage. You see what happens in the world. We saw the statistics. It's a mess without Christ. So don't leave here today. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't leave here without accepting him. Thomas talked to me, somebody you came with tonight, one of the elders, just grab somebody, right, and pray. As Chad and I'll come forward, um, remember, you can pray here at the altar. Spouses can come here. Singles can come here. If you want to meet with uh, Frank and his wife in the prayer room, you can do that. You can stay at your seat. doesn't matter where you're at to do business with God, right? But don't leave here without doing business with God. We can profane him or consecrate him and how the choices we make, right? Father, we come before you and forgive us for treating holy as common. Forgive us for making you so small. You are a holy God, magnificent, powerful. We should be in all of you and on all of your holiness. Forgive us, Father, for marring your institution of marriage, whether we're single or, or married already. Forgive us, Father, of bringing our, our blemished selves before you and not thinking anything of it. You are a holy God. We cry to you tonight, Father, to renew our lives. Name your son Jesus, we pray, who makes all this possible. Amen.